Well, uh, why, don't we, why don't we thank God? <coughs> Dear Lord, we are grateful for the families you've given us. We're grateful for the children, both the ones that we have and the ones that we will have. We'd ask that you would um, have us be submissive before you and before your word, that we would be the kind of parents that would raise godly children. This we ask in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, strangely quiet. Is it because the air conditioner was turned off? Yes. Good. We did buy an air conditioner for these sorts of moments to cool these rooms so that summer seminars could be comfortable. Um, used our Costco kickback for that. Um, and then some. That is also being recorded. Um, Leslie actually named the seminar. We were looking at words in a thesaurus, I think, for you know, descendants or whatever, and she saw the word bloodline and just became uh, excited and suggested it. Um, someone else suggested bloodlust or blood feud. Bloodletting. Bloodletting. But uh, bloodline is what it was going to be. And, and um, that what you rear in a family, what you... Uh, are about uh, our subtitle, The Descent of True Image. We, we, we went back and forth, is it the, the, the image of true descent, the descent of true image? But the idea um, is that the children are directly affected by you and who you are. Not that they either have your issues or problems or sins necessarily, but what they are marked you out and responded to who you were. And there's going to be a, a shaping that you do. And so we're going to follow that through the, um, the notebook each evening. Tonight will be on the aroma of true religion, but each night the need for a true adult, the peace of true discipline, the joy of true affection, and testing the true. We, we want to know what, you know, everybody realizes that religion is good, uh, discipline is good, adult is good, uh, affection is good, but we want the true stuff. We want both biblically, we want, to, we want to understand what is true. Leslie will be sitting docilely at my side and then occasionally giving me the high sign or interrupting with illustrations that she remembers that I don't because she has our life uh, figured out. And uh, things that the women here may appreciate hearing from her because I can be a little cold, say un unapproachable. And uh, I might say something that uh, doesn't sound like I have enough, enough tenderness, the females here. And uh, so Leslie will step in. And, and I'm that much warmer. <laughs> <laughs> so be cold people. That's what we're recommending. Good night. <laughs> um, first off, uh, kind of as a preface, when you're dealing with parenting, you're dealing with government. Um, you have essentially all governments deal with the same materials. They are, um, to achieve whatever their directive is, they are going to apply their power to either reward or punish, to apply pain or pleasure to those that they are governing, to get those they are governing to do 
the thing that they need them to do, to live in a state of order. They're trying to uh, bring a civic society to order, civil society to order, or a family, or a business, or um, a church, or um, um, or a marriage. Those things all involve governments. Now, each government has a uh, has a prime directive uh, that all governments that are civil governments are there to police us usurpation. That's what their prime directive is. They have armies at the border, they have police on the streets, and they are trying to keep people from taking other people's stuff. Either another nation coming in and taking our stuff, or a thief taking our stuff, or someone cheating us on a contract, or their, their courts and their police and their armies are there to police usurpation. Uh, husbands and wives are supposed to uh, uh, erotically marry. The, the task of a husband and wife government is to bring the two together in a tighter union. Um, economically, masters and slaves, uh, employers, employees, they're there to uh, add value, uh, do something to add value. You're not just there to give a job to a, a worker, you're there to add, the worker's there to give add value and the boss or the master is trying to order things in order to create that. And parents are there, and I'll see if I can do this first. Uh, the prime directive of parental government is to exchange maturity in peace. That's the prime thing you are to do. Every parent, everywhere, all time, every culture, every religion, they're about taking something that comes out of the chute, like ransom over there, completely a peanut, completely unable to think, reason, wipe his own nose and you start by wiping their <coughs> nose we'll say and uh, you stop wiping their nose after a while you teach them to use a Kleenex you say here maturity shoes to be tied diapers not to be worn potty training um, and uh, uh, that's what you do and until you're done and when you're done it's this task fulfilled which I am able to, there is water there, and there are packets on the buffet, you each get one. You can have more than one water, and you can have one packet right. each. And uh, we've just, uh, just started. Um, so, um, this idea of you being done with this job at some point, you are not the parent, you, you will have the relationship of the parent, but I was talking to someone the other day who had a question about when does a parent's uh, authority over their children cease? Well, you know, like if we're a daughter, it ceases when she marries somebody. Um, I think there's a philosophy behind that, but it's evident that it ceases. You can't obey your husband and obey your dad at the same time. Um, so, um, we know that this task comes to an end, and it comes to an end. Hopefully, you're in sync with having exchanged maturity when they reach the size and the will that wants to be running their own life. That they're at 18, they're going to go off to college, go get a job someplace, and at that point, you ought to be able to go with joy, okay, real life will discipline you from here on in. Now, um, what we deal with in terms of this replica, it's a replication that loses its control and authority. Other authorities don't. 
husbands stay with their wives their whole lives until one of you perishes. Um, civil governments try to maintain their empire as long as possible. This is one that comes to an end. Not in honor, but in its governance. The governance comes to an end. Um, exempting, of course, situations where the child is is not mentally capable of living on their own, and consequently they are forced to stay children, and you are forced to always be part of their maturity. That's why you keep them, is you're forced to be part of their maturity. If they can become mature enough to live on their own, they ought to. It says in Genesis, therefore a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. In that, there's this transition to an, the next family from the preceding parents. Okay, the father, in that situation, there were no father and mother. For Adam and Eve, they were, they were just created. But So the writer, the commentator, uh, Moses, is letting you know that this is the pattern. Father and mother, child grows up, finds a wife, goes off and cleaves to his wife. They become one flesh, produce a child, rear the child in maturity, and do the same. It says in Genesis 5, um, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. That's where we got the idea of this descent of true image. Now, Adam was created in the image of God. Male and female created he them. Seth was created in the image of Adam. Now, he is thereby in the image of God, but it's by Xerox replication. You know, it's it's, or as I said in church the other day, women are 3D printers and they crank out the next version of, uh, of descent. Um, it's a nice, tender image, I realize. <laughs> and I'm full of those. Um, so the, the first question that we're dealing with is, for us, this is a parenting seminar more than a child-rearing seminar because it's to the parents, not to the children. Um, uh, you're, not, you're children of your parents, and you may say, you know, I probably owe my parents an apology uh, after this, but uh, primarily it's to parents or people who will be parents who are trying to set the right things in motion that their kids will not be hell on wheels. And one of the first things you have to realize is as you approach this is who is your father? Now, we are primarily tonight talking about religion and the religion, in your, the religion of your home, but we can't control who our father was. Our father could have been a bad man, a fool, a wise man, a saint. You can't control that. But in the grace of God, we, as we become children of God, I have a number of passages of Scripture, John 1, a great passage where those who received him who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. And of John 3, born from above. Uh, John 8, where he's in an argument with the Jews and they're claiming, we're descendants of Abraham. Uh, there is a... Um, uh, people naturally wish, parents do this, and I'm going to warn you against a lot of these qualities that you may feel temptations toward. Um, they're not creating Christian young people. They're creating little versions of what they would like to see in what they would call a Christian little kid. Not what Jesus Christ wants. Not even recognizing what Jesus Christ 
represents. And Christianity, anthropology of Christianity matters and cosmology of Christianity matters. God has a different view of humanity usually than you do when you're rearing your kids. He knows they're going to become depraved sinners. And some parents can't accept that. He knows that the gospel came to save those sinners, and the parent wants to skip that part and just rear them with enough discipline and training and good private Christian school and whatever it is, homeschooling, to keep them from ever being that depraved sinner. We have to have God's anthropology. What is man? Who is man? What is God doing? What's the cosmology of what is God doing in the universe? So first recognizing who your father is and who you are imaging. If Christ God is your father, then you are a child of God. You're entering the situation with a leg up, with a different task on you to represent Jesus Christ in your home, to represent God in your home. Um, did you? Are you ur urging me to? No, fine. Um, I, I have the, emboldened that John eight section. The Jews were arguing. We have descendants of Abraham. He says God can make descendants of Abraham out of these stones. You know, he's more concerned that they are in their claim. Uh, on the next page, you are your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. And this whole thing is structured in terms of children of the fathers accepted. The Jews had accepted, essentially without themselves knowing it, the devil as their father. And Christ was saying, God is my father. And the scriptures teach us that we all become adopted children of God. So bearing that likeness in all of this, you could easily say to a group of people, okay, just be like God in the home with all the knowledge and wisdom of God and your kids will turn out. Live long and prosper. Um, um, but we have to be conscious of that because we challenge it all the time. We challenge it, our churches challenge it, our culture challenges it, everything comes up against us to say, no, 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 no. Not the way God wants it, but the way this Christian culture wants it. Not even the Christian, some people will say, well, not this Christian culture, the evangelicals are so schmarmy. Let's go back 50 years to another Christian culture, be fundamentalists. Or let's go back uh, you know, 2,000 years and be the early church. Um, does it, you know, none of those things are God. None of those things are our Father. And that's the danger of calling people like Cyril, or Basil, or Irenaeus, or Polycarp, the church fathers. Because people start, and Jesus Christ said very clearly, call no man father. You have one father. That is God. Call no man master. You have one master, God. Call no man rabbi. Now, oddly enough, we almost overtly take that on and accept it as we, we reverence things other than true religion. We accept this, this shadow religion called Christendom that's been handed to us. And when they tell us, the church fathers, we say, oh yeah, that was the, th was the one thing banned in calling them the fathers, or calling anyone father, it's not true. I mean, my kids called me father, literally father. 
That wasn't disobedience because God, Christ was not talking about kids and their parents. He was talking about anybody who holds spiritual sway in you. You don't call him father, you don't call him rabbi, and you don't call him master. Um, so, bearing that in mind, it's a matter of who you are, who is your father, what you what you always link yourself back to, control yourself in, and make sure that the image that you're taking on is the thing that uh, he wants you to do, and not what your local, you know, enjoyed Christian fellowship. You're going to find all sorts of times that you've got ideas about rearing your kids that your chosen fellowship can't see how you can hope to have godly kids because they're not in whatever program or they're not, you know, uh, doing whatever you're, uh, they're doing. So, the image that we bear, when it says in Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God of Christ, the firstborn of all creation. It says in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness. John, 1 John, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And this idea of, of resetting where our sense of parent is for us, so that we, our heart, our knees, our, we're in submission to, um, <coughs> to what our Father wants. We are trying to imitate the image that we've been given. Because if we don't go to Christ and God, we will end up pulling together the fathers that we have either been born with or the fathers we selected out of our, our church tradition or whatever else. We don't want that. Um, we want true religion. The, um, what you're trying to do with your kids when it says the exchange of mature, exchange maturity and peace, that idea is... It, it doesn't sound well, you didn't say anything about the gospel in that exchange maturity and peace well as soon as you start defining who the image is what the peace is what the you know, but that's what parents do and to do it right is to raise them in the Lord to raise them in a tranquil existence a well-ordered life rejoicing and at peace we know that's only possible through the gospel we know that's only possible in Christ but we say we can say it so that, that, that to live a rejoicing life tranquil, well-ordered. That's what we're trying to do. So when we get to the idea of true religion, we're going to go through is a series of, of things that Jesus or the apostles said clear, you know, don't do this. And parents who are looking at little Johnny, who is now two and difficult, um, and they say, okay, we'll get him into what church, are, you know, we don't want to put them into the whatever the schools or the city is doing. They might beat bad kids at the pool. We don't want them at the pool. The gangs are at the pool. And uh, so we'll get them into Awana. The gangs at Awana. And uh, we're desperate. We're desperate. We, and there's no antipathy other than for little jewels they make Awana kids wear. We did not allow our kids to do Awana because they're little jewels. I didn't want my kids to turn out gay. You know, that was... But I'm sure there's a lot of good Bible knowledge being taught at Awana or Christian literature, children's literature crusade or things like that. There are various, various good things out there, but we, out of desperation, don't have the highest and best situation in our own home. Why isn't our highest and best situation in our own home? Because 
Why is it true religion so manifest there? What do you believe the church is? Do you believe the church has is, is the repository in some Catholic sense of true religion that they have a magisterial authority to tell you what to do and how your kids should be grown up? Parents, you've heard of parents. Maybe it happened to you. Just drop their kids off at Sunday school and never attend church themselves. Uh, that's just an ex, 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 uh, I'd say, um, excessive thing that we do ourselves as Christian parents. We're hoping the youth group's going to save your kid. And if you ever talk to the youth leader, it ain't happening. <laughs> of course, that's a generalization. If anybody's listening to this and doesn't like that, <laughs> it was a generalization. Um, okay, the first thing in terms of true religion, you have to break free some of your worldliness. If you, if you <coughs> parents, you love your kids, and I, I understand that. I've heard of it happening, and uh, read stories. Um, it's easy for you to step aside from what God would have you do with your children, what kind of parenting, to exchange maturity, and you start to say, and certain maturities are going to have certain successes, that they will get a good education, and a good job, and a marry into a good family and raise beautiful children of an Anglo-Saxon stock. And um, uh, th that worldly success becomes your, your marker for whether or not uh, God's blessing is on you. And you want to be in the situation where you say, you know, I'd be far happier with my, my kid worked at the convenience store for the rest of his life if he was at peace, rejoicing, and knew the Lord. Couldn't afford to live in anything but a single wide. Peace, rejoicing in the Lord. You need to be in a situation where you're not setting yourself markers that, that aren't the markers that, one, parenting generally requires of you, and two, that, that can throw you off the task, throw you off the scent. That makes me think of that man who called a few months ago. I don't know that I should say his name. Probably not. Okay. But he lived in this area. Do you know who I'm talking about? No. Um, he lived yeah. in this area. He was not a very bright man. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> um, but he always was sincerely wanting to please the Lord. And he's been in several different places. He's been in Colorado, and he's been in, I think now he's somewhere in the Seattle area. But he called a few well, a couple months ago and just wanted to check in and kind of gave the story of how he was doing and he's really struggling financially but he was so rejoicing in the Lord. He's essentially homeless. He sells roses on the street corner. Um, keeps life and limb together barely and but rejoicing all the time. Just uh, uh, and it's a simple man but um, you say, I, are you wishing I had a slightly retarded rose-selling saint, Evan? Is that what you <laughs> call success in parenting? Um, well, I, I heard a story just a couple days ago. Someone asked my advice of what would I do in this situation. Um, uh, a very patriarchal father from another country was demanding that all of his children, guys and girls, go to med school whether they wanted to or not, whether they could or not, demanded that they all do so. And he's about to disown his daughter because she, although she has a master's in chemistry already, 
disown his daughter because she doesn't want to go to med school. Um, and um, he had a vivid image of what he wanted his kids to accomplish. And he, the fact that she's a dear Christian and a mature woman and has accomplished a lot didn't matter. It was, it was um, that my way or the highway. And you want to be sure that you are serving first it's your own image for you, that you've clarified who your father is, and that you're representing him. You're trying to pass on to your kids not, not success, but beatification. Um, there is uh, um, this idea in our faith. I don't know if I have a... Oh, it's not quite... My next slide isn't up yet, but... Um, that... Uh, when God makes the promise, a lot of people quote this promise out of Exodus 20, uh, down at the bottom of page 4. Um, For I, the Lord, am a a Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation of those that hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Um, my wife has always pointed out that it doesn't say thousands of generations. I don't know if you knew this, but there haven't been a thousand generations in the history of the world yet. So, uh, you know, uh, it, but it's thousands of those who love me. Uh, and there is a, uh, a task, if you want that blessing, you don't then say, okay, that means we religious Christian types get the blessing of God in our child rearing. So, okay, God, now you stand over to the side here. We will decide what that looks like. We will decide what catechism we learn, what catechism we teach, what kind of programs we get our kids into. But because we know that for generations, but it's now, it's for those who love him. And so we have to be sure that the aroma of religion in my house is that the parents love the Lord. Love the Lord, first off. And you don't count on, since the scriptures are very clear, that generational blessings or cursings don't happen for any guilt or good that the parents do. Ezekiel 18 is very clear. The whole chapter is about this, where he says on page 5, the word of the Lord came to me again. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and their children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, says the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son is mine, the soul that sins shall die. And he goes through that whole chapter running different analogies, saying, okay, what if the Father was bad? Well, the kid's good, great. The kid will be judged for his own goodness, the Father for his own sin. And if the Father was good, the kid was bad. Each, you don't have a passage of you know, original sin guilt that comes down, or, or the blessing of the original loving Father. My father uh, came to know the Lord at the Naval Academy and then married uh, my mother uh, somewhere, sometime, um, and produced first a trial son and then the child of promise. <laughs> and when the child of... And then there was just, you know, uh, this batting cleanup. And uh, my parents were godly parents. And my parents' righteousness had, didn't make us Christians, didn't make us good, that's for certain, and uh, it was not a promise to God that for thousands of generations my father's love would be poured out to the next generation. Neither is the guilt of the father poured out to the next generation. 
This is something that is, you might say, um, the fate of a situation. Um, we'll get to that maybe a little later. The, that fate is, is, is sort of like what will happen if you don't do anything to change it. You see families that do take on patterns of evil down through the generation because they take on the image of their parents and nothing steps in to correct them. Um, but uh, um, the uh, idea of, did I say that on the earlier page? I don't think I did. I can't remember, after looking at all this stuff for the last three months, I, you know, all, I had to put some cartoons in here just to break up the gray, but uh, not enough, obviously. Um, you are looking at trying to put a situation into play. You are not, by any discipline of your child-rearing philosophy, going to fix your kid. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to fix your kid. That's what it's going to come to at some crucial moment. Your kid's going to know you, their sins, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you want that to be a sincere, real choice for the gospel. That's what you're facing. You're not facing, I'm going to make a perfect little citizen who will make me proud at Sunday school because my little khaki-wearing piece of work is going to be the best. And some elements of that are... Ooh, power will be turned off. There we go. Technology. The demons are trying to stop us. Um, so basically, what we're looking at is uh, not a... Uh, um, not a issue of um, that fate has got a grip on your kids with your wicked wickedness for at least three to four generations. That means the gospel couldn't step in anytime, or that righteousness is going to be promised if you're just good enough and you surround your kids with good religion. Uh, it's going to carry through. That's not that kind of thing. It's a very uh, the humanity's crippled by sin and you're in a situation where your parenting is going to rise to the cause of the gospel. That's what your religion is supposed to do. Um, they will have to deal with your image. You might want to deal with it first. That's what we're uh, essentially getting at, that what kind of religion you practice. Um, I don't, I've talked countless, countless, because um, I don't count, but people who their view of God they're currently away from the Lord now or they were away from the Lord and finally got right with God off at college sometime because their parents were good Christians by, that def by the definition of what evangelical churches were handing out on the homestead Dis Christianity discouraged them and it says fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. That's exactly what Christian religion has done to people, just provoking. It is so decidedly uncool. Or then when they get cool, dear heavens, you know, they got the little knit caps and the, and the plaid and skinny jeans. And, and in my day, it was or descending fault. Piercings. fault you know, we, in our day, it was uh, you know, felt descending doves on banners saying Maranatha. <laughs> And you just wanted to shoot somebody. Because you knew it wasn't cool. They didn't know it wasn't cool. That's when they're trying so hard. We're going to get to that in a moment. Uh, but but the, everything wrong about what religion is supposed to be. 
So let's look at a few of those things that are wrong about religion is supposed to be. Undo the pious. Quit, quit designing a piety that is unbiblical, forbidden, and churches all over of every stripe are designing themselves around this. Has your religion centered on the calendar, the Sabbath, any kind of dietary holiness? And I merely quote Colossians. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. These things, these are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, I don't think, if I were with an Anglican believing family, and they happen to, without thinking, celebrate Advent or some such thing, I wouldn't have a problem with it. We celebrate Christmas. Um, it's a matter of whether or not have they centered on that? Because it's so easy to get your kids to center on the religious calendar, to center on the, the things they can memorize and chant back to you, uh, the kind of, if your religion has a dietary uh, restrictiveness or keeping the Sabbath, um, they become not the shadow, they become the substance, and Christ stands in the back, kind of as the shadow you hope all of this Christianity is going to cast, and they will eventually notice the shadow. That's how people are thinking. Erect the cathedral and hope that the shadow cast is you know, enough of Christ that they will find him someday. But that's the shadow. The church is the shadow. The tradition is the shadow. Um, so bear that. You know, it just, it's not in terms of saying, well, can you say that any of that is wrong? If it is not the shadow anymore and it's the substance, that's why I said, has your religion centered on that? Do people find themselves going when they meet somebody from some you know, charismatic church or a Baptist church and they're Anglicans or Lutherans just rejoicing that these guys are in the Lord too. They've met Lord Jesus Christ. They've been forgiven of sins. They know the gospel. They might not know how to stand up and kneel down, stand up and kneel down at the right times. And that's, again, is there anything wrong with standing up and kneeling down? No. As long as it is not anything but a shadow. It's just decoration. But people don't treat it as decoration. And the sooner you get into an involved or detailed church, you are encouraged not to think of it as decoration. Because that diminishes it. They don't want it diminished. People come to those churches for a lot of those reasons. And again, it could be everything from a low church, charismatic, evangelical, um, program-driven religion it's those things that we have to have in place. Or it could be a high church, smells and bells, that sort of thing. Has your religion centered on places of worship and institutions? I like that verse in Jeremiah 7, 4. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. I was told any number of times not to run in the hall of my church growing up because it was the house of God. Um... This is a Southern Baptist church, not a house of God. <laughs> um, the, um, the interesting thing about this was, this was the house of God. It was still deception. The presence of God dwelt in the temple in Jerusalem, and Jeremiah says, don't even trust that. If you, if you knew that at Down at All Souls Christian Church, the presence of deity 
hung in the chancel every Sunday morning as I preached with power. People go, you want to go to that church? This is, this is trust him, everything he says. Don't trust locatable, God does not dwell in houses made by men. And that is a deception that the Jews fell for when God designed the decorations of that building. God designed it. So you can't, you can't come up with a better cathedral than a temple God designs. But we always, they, they fell into that trap, again, of putting place and involvement, location, uh, as an important thing. Has your, stand, has your religion argued how biblical those standards are? Because um, that's what happens next. People hear some antinomian, low church, Anabaptist guy like myself going, and that for your catechism. And they start to go, do you realize that the, and we've studied this from the Song of Ascents and, and uh, in, in David and the like. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Sun, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Someone who's in the light might choose to have a more solemn church service than I do. And God bless them. And I might choose to have a not as solemn church service as they do, and God bless me. But it's not, that's not the problem. It's the iniquity. It's the saying, this is central. This is the substance, not the shadow. This is the religion that you introduce your kids to. Um, have you ever you know, venerated the church as a concept, the church? or the, the denomination that you uh, belong to. It says in Mark 7, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Now, in every one of these situations, if I do not keep Christendom at one level, and even evangelical, real living Christianity in an evangelical church, and with good Christians, and most of the people there are Christians, this still can happen. Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Eventually, the substance and the shadow get into an argument. And believe me, all the money and the power and the boards and the committees are on the side of the shadow. And they would rather keep Christianity the way it's looked the way they designed it, with whatever it is. You see them inviting men who've been caught with somebody else's wife back into their pulpits. You see, you see calamity on the... Things that are clearly taught against. No, if he's got a wild child, you can't be a... No, it's okay. It can be someone as biblical as Charles Stanley. It can be... Uh, you know, um, I was just reading about uh, some famous Christian's kid who I didn't realize it was the famous Christian's kid until I realized who this, person, this woman's son was. And she had not only gotten divorced from her first husband, but she was arrested for spousal abuse in a parking lot in Florida 
of her current husband choking him. And she was the daughter, an adult, daughter of a famous, famous Christian. And this famous Christian had a lot of kids that had gone around the bend. Francis Schaeffer's kid went around the bend. Billy Graham's kid went around the bend. Kids went around the bend. Um, because we get to a point where it's what the Word of God says or what we really what we really want or need for our institution, our shadow to continue, because we're more committed to the shadow. Because there's a problem with the substance of Christ. Um, but in terms of child rearing, this is um, your kids know. <laughs> they know what sort of schlocky Christianity you are venerating. You are taking everything that is not what the Lord wants to have major, you're making it major. And they might be little sinners, but they know good and evil. They have a conscience. They're growing in wisdom all the time as to analyzing it. They don't know when they're teens or whatever how to deal with it correctly. Well, I don't want to go to church. You know, oh my gosh, little Johnny won't go to church. What made him hate church? You? The church? It's not like he was born with a gene to hate church. The kid knows what image you value. And they'd rather have you memorize... Um, I went to my daughter's church. Good church. But they've picked up the new what's called the New City Catechism. I think uh, Tim Keller came up with it. It was still a catechism at the end of the church service. They had the whole church reciting this thing. Twice. Twice. Well, that's because we went there twice. No, they did it twice the second that time. Oh, yeah. Said a good thing. I had no problem with what it said. You know, it might have been a few arguable points, but it was, you know, decent Christianity on the screen. It was on a screen. Not like this godly screen. <laughs> but a bigger screen with a projector. And decorations. And decorations, yes. Um, says there in that Isaiah 29 passage, Draw, they, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, all their heart, our hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment of men learned by rote. This will be the surprise of your life, because they, and we'll get to this a little later, going on Friday, they, if you could be successful, because you could be loving and disciplining and you can buy the best khakis, and you can part their hair on the side, and they don't know what sex is. <laughs> and they don't know what cool is. And they won't for years. And they're going to be good little citizens of your little world. And you'll think you're just hitting all on all cylinders as a parent. And then something happens called options. <laughs> and... Um, what you raised them up to think was a powerful religion has no power in it. It's just the shadow. Now, my parents, and I say this in the next section, um, I was thinking about it years ago when people were asking me, how did Jim and Bessie raise you? Well, spankings. But that's the, that's the easy answer. We're going to cover you know, what, how, what that is or what that deals with on the third night. Um, 
but I was trying to, you know, say philosophically, what did my, my parents' Christianity had nothing to do with the church we attended. Nothing. It was only sort of an accident that they picked a church that they thought was closest biblically to the word, and that's where we went, but our Christianity had nothing to do with the church. We were involved. You know, I hated Sunday school, hated youth group, hated VBS, and uh, I never, ever required that my kids go to any of those. If they wanted, they could go, but I was, it was uh, horrible for me. Um, but I knew my parents, their religion, didn't have any of the institutional arguments. It wasn't that they were religious in their own kind of libertarian separatist way, and they had their own, or had our own little laws about pork and Sabbath observance in the Wilson household. You know, I, I still remember my mother tap dancing to Creedence Clearwater Revival <laughs> in the kitchen, thinking that no one was watching or knowing, and she was in there tap dancing to the rock and roll station. Um, and she wasn't cool. She was never cool. Um, but they, their religion was absolutely real. It was all substance, and it was all the substance was all Christ. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a trick we get into because sometimes when we look at our own Christian walk, we look at it in such a way that we say, okay, okay, I'm, I'm, I know I'm not really that much of a Christian and I'm not really that uh, doing that well, but I really want my kids to be better than I've turned out to be. And, and you sort of say, we're making them more, holding them to a higher standard than, than we um, are held to. And because we want them to turn out, you know, so kind of like I didn't make much money. I'm making only, you know, thirty thousand a year. I'd always like to see my kids make, you know, eighty thousand a year. That'd be great. We, we think of it as a progress thing. I'm not a lousy Christian. I hope they turn out better. Um, what's the Christianity you have when everything that has been decorating it? And again, you can't avoid those decorations. You're going to go to a church. All Souls Christian has decorations. Not many, but decorations. When you remove all that stuff, the Sunday service, even the Sunday service, the hymns or the choruses or the programs or the bulletins, God, I was going to say God damn them. <laughs> I think there's a special place in the inferno for the photographers who shoot the covers for those bulletins. It's not just the bulletins? It's not just the bulletins. You know, it's the, it's the, the open Bible with the soft focus and a candle. You know, I don't know what, what did that, what brought that on. A church can be well-landscaped graveyard, be a, a well-landscaped graveyard, and you might have built the nicest mausoleum. That, Christ tells us in Luke, he says, your graves that people walk over without not knowing they're walking over graves. Your kids live inside the mausoleum. Your kids know whether or not all the sanctity that you suggest in church attendance or involvement or whatever. This happens to pastors all the time. We had years ago when the church, when Ephraim first planted um, uh, Faith Fellowship over in Moscow 
we had a pastor that they gave to us, uh, a guy named Lowell Carlson, and he had a floppy Bible and he had gray hair and he was he preached the word with power and his wife never seemed to come to church. And all these hippies were wondering, well, you know, what's wrong with what was her name? Joyce? No. Um, and we didn't know. We were just, well, that's, that's, that's kind of sad. Turns out she couldn't stand to see him preach the word because of who he was at home. And he ran off with another woman. Surprised the heck out of all these hippies. Because we were all, you know, Christianity, well, this is great. Not realizing that there was a, a difference like this, that Christianity, because it becomes institutionalized and has to have a plan, you have to say, okay, everybody on Sunday morning, we're meeting at 9.30. You've got to come up with a plan, otherwise no one will ever meet. So people who like plans, like bureaucracies, like decorations, they start to want the religion to be more of that. And they go to seminary, and they leave their wives. They get a THD, and they leave their wives. And their kids leave the faith. The kids know what's in the graveyard of your of your life. It's a this idea of um, hoping that the externals fake it till you make it idea. That that if I just get really involved, if I get in, in a men's accountability group or I go to Promise Keeper, whatever the current thrust is. The external um, event or the process, people want to trust that it's going to bring something into them. And bowing the knee to the gospel, confessing your sins, those are the things that are going to change you. Um, and those are the things that are sort of the pious things. We, we, you know, the church involved things. The next is really the, the devotion, undoing devotion, because everything is not institutional. Everything that's bad is not institutional. Uh, I know I'm known kind of in my radical Anabaptist sort of tendencies to, you know, be up against the man. But um, people think, oh yeah, well, it's really, it's really the devout, you know, your own personal, you know, as long as it's personal. No, that could be just as stupid, just as wrong. Um, internal spiritual silliness is no better than external spiritual silliness. And the Bible speaks to it. Colossians 2. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, taking his stand on visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Two personal relationships. One is in Christ, and one is in visions, angels, um, uh, sensuality, um, uh, restricted life, self-abasement. You know, kind of, I am broken. That's a big trendy, trendy term in the last nine, ten years, something like that. God help us. Um, and everybody runs around being self-abased. Everybody, and because they really feel broken... And they're and they're talking about angels, and and you know this is this is so current. Someone has a vision. No reason. They're just sensuality. Personal act is not 
good versus institutional. And I really can't stand people who say to me, well, I'm really into worship. Shut the heck up. No, you're not. You're into whatever the, I don't care if it's the hymns at All Souls or the jumping juke joint that my daughter goes to. And she leads the worship there. It doesn't matter to me whether or not it's the wonderful soaring voices of great harmony in a cathedral uh, or um, uh, heavy bass lines. Um, it's not worship. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. These are people who want to have the sensuality of their life touched. They want to have a personal moment. They, they, they are there. I was at this church service, and I was stuck in a pew. Actually, I ended up sitting next to a girl from Pullman, Resonate Girl, down in Portland. Her name was Tannis Bogart. No, your sister. Nice girl. <coughs> but uh, the people right in front of me, they were going to town. They were, they, were, they were big, and they were going to town. White people, so they weren't going to town very well. But they, they, were, uh, they really had, they had the one-hand thing going, and they had the two-hand things going. The guy had special hand movements. I'm not sure <laughs> what they meant, but they meant something. Now, he's not wrong for doing that. It's not wrong for having a, a posture that is prostrate, a posture that is sitting down, a posture that is standing and dancing. All those things are fine. But people are thinking it, like the tradition, like the institution, like the history, all of these things that aren't the substance, aren't the worship, and they, they start by moving the name over. They start by calling that building a Christian church. And we know perfectly well it's not a Christian church, it's a building. Christian church is those called out by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the church. It's the church invisible. But the people who are into the visible church are going, oh, yeah, but we got to meet and we got to do this. They're just slowly moving over the center of attention. I think that the idea that you can get involved in any sort of um, emotional experience like that that has to do with music and um, movement, um, when your life's a mess, that it sort of negates what Scripture says worship is. I've read some black articles by black pastors who are very aware that the black church, by tradition, is not godly at all. Okay? And I've been to black churches, and... They say, they talk about Jesus, they talk about all sorts of things. They but, sing really and they well. sing And they sing a lot better than that couple in front of me. Yeah. Um, but it's just their entertainment for the week. It's their feeling of superstition being answered. People living awful lives. Pastors living awful lives. Think about it. Reverend Jesse Jackson. Reverend Al Sharpton. And that's not unusual in black reverence. Okay. We find it in, in white pastors, you know, all too often. It's cultural in the black church. And the black, the real believers who are in the black church know it. Know that there's this real sort of uh, almost complete separation of real Christianity from uh, a, a majority of the black churches. Um, 
and and but it's beginning. It's, it's happening in every church. It happened in the Roman Catholic Church for millennia, and it happens all the time. In the it's now the liberal churches, they don't they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God anymore, but they still get together on Sunday because everybody likes the religion. Now, these are things. These these devotions first institutional. Um, and, and if, you, if you shift this, it's, it's the image, the kid's watching your image. The kid is dealing somehow with the image you're creating. You need to deal with it and say, am I going to be, if I'm going to go to this church, how am I going to convey to my kid that that's not the thing? I would suggest doing something like, let's not go to church this Sunday. Let's just... Uh, Sing a few hymns at home and read a Bible storybook and call it good. My father's the coolest. We don't have to go to church. Because I can remember, any of my parents were, you know, saints. They still went to a basic Southern Baptist church growing up. And I was trying to think of ways to have a cough or, you know, something. My throat's sore. What can they not check? You know, um, <laughs> Now, why do you start? Why do kids start thinking that way? And we think that we solve it by getting enough of their friends and a and a fun thing going on there at church, so they want to go to that. They don't want to be there for any spiritual reason whatsoever. But at the same time, the institution, you saying, "Am I a child of that, or is my life a child of Jesus Christ? Is my devotion, the kind of devotion, a silliness?" That your kid starts to get any sophistication in their thinking at all. They're looking at the Noah situation where the, the mom was just such a silly Christian that um, she's roundly despised by her children. Are you all about the Bible memory programs, catechisms, and confessions? I love this verse because they you hear this all the time in a positive sense, but they didn't look at the rest. They're not... It's precepts, for it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Nay, but by men of strange lips and with an alien tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. Therefore, the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Not a <laughs> And people talk about, oh yeah, I, I, I had navigators around me all the time because my dad was in navigators and knew Dawson Trotman and, you know, and it's just like this, we're really devout. We have Bible memory. I mean, you get called, your disciple leader would call you, what's your verse today? You know, it was like, what's your 11th general order, sir? You know, I, my 11th general order is. And you had to have it memorized. Every day, a new verse. Precept on precept. That they fall backwards, be broken, be snared, and cap taken. It's not a positive thing. Scripture memory. You say, well, well don't you want your... You have that verse sticks in your head. I have laid up thy word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And you lay it up in your heart. It's not going to get to your heart by memorizing it. Lay it up in your heart 
you remember scriptures because they're meaningful. You don't memorize them to make them meaningful. Because countless non-believing kids can quote, quote John 3.16. They all learned it. Your personal devotion is some of these things uh, like memory or catechisms or, or those sort of things you do in your home, you do with your kids, you're trying to school them. Um, is, is tied to the institution you're in. Some groups do it, some groups don't. But, uh, I recommend that you, that you not. That not, not that there's, again, a song for, with memorizing a scripture, but I would do that if you did it, do it academically. You know, like you would have the memorized portion of Shakespeare. You know, uh, this, is, this is a famous, this famous section of, 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 of the book of Isaiah. You might want to have this in your mind. It might come in handy. But it's not going to make, I want it. it's not going to make you godly. It's not going to make you a child of God. It's not going to make you what I have. You want to be able to say, it's not going to make you what I have. Whatever you have them do religiously, kids, you go in a youth group, but it's not going to make you what your mother and I have. What we have is a, is a club. You can't join. <laughs> you want it, you, you, you see Jesus pushing, pushing people away because God wants to be sought. God wants to be sought. So you also have to undo, you have to undo institutional, traditional, pious stuff. You have to do the personal replacement devotion instead of personal spiritual worship, being a living sacrifice. You replace it with being in a worship setting where people play the music you like. Um, but you also have to undo the law because this is where a lot of personal Christian parents err. They make the list of do's and don'ts. And you have to ask yourself, whose world am I seeking to create? Um, Colossians 2. And it's a, I won't tell you to memorize this passage, but I'll give you five bucks. No. <laughs> you, it ought to be memorable to you because you will walk. Some of these you probably say, I could use this at any point in my Christian walk with my Christian friends because they're taking their faith on visions puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. They think this is that. They think white is black. They are crazy people. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Referring to things which all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and doctrines. These have, indeed, an appearance of wisdom in promoting rigor of devotion and self-abasement and severity to the body, but they're of no value in checking the indulgence of the flesh. My father has taken, as he has aged, a little less interest in having his opinions. He still has them, but he doesn't teach them as much. He was told by the newspaper, he was writing a column for the newspaper, and he was just quoting scripture and Murph Rackett called him, the editor, and said, you can't do that, Jim. You've got to actually have an opinion for the opinion page. You can't just quote scripture. He said, well, that is my opinion. <laughs> but this, you know, it's apparent. Do I have a slide for this? 
All governors think their laws are wise. Being in charge does not work such a magic. Just because you made the rules doesn't make you right, doesn't make you wise. Of course you wouldn't make a rule you didn't think was wise. All these rule makers, they, they collect the apparent wisdom. Yeah, you know, because, you know, this would be that, or this would be, what if we did this? Of course you're going to look wise, but you aren't. That's the, what an awful place to be. You have to say, I have to have the humility to realize that when I think I'm being something, I might be being the absolute opposite. Apparent wisdom, because it promotes rigor of devotion, we already had a little argument about devotion, self-abasement again, severity to the body, oh, the kids are you know, learning to be not having as much stuff. That, well, I don't allow them to have pop. But we don't want them, well, to enjoy life. <laughs> because, hey, you know, it's something that, of course, we think sort of automatically that anything that isn't enjoyable is probably good. Because all the things that are enjoyable, like sex or sex, food, the enjoyable food, like Twinkies and deep fried Twinkies, <laughs> of course they're bad. It tastes good. Now, I know you might not agree with me about deep fried Twinkies. I have never had one. It sounds good. Um, but rigor of devotion, just because you might watch yourself. You could be a real rat bastard about. Is that recorded? What? Um, because you think what you're coming up with about how you're going to run your home is smart. And you're following themes that are ancient themes of devotion, self-abasement, and severity, but they're of no value in checking what really you want to check. You want your kid to grow up with the maturity exchange to them that they don't make decisions to sleep around, get drunk, take drugs, lie to people, murder anybody. Or steal. Or steal. <laughs> Checking the indulgence of the flesh, you would like their maturity to handle that. And this doesn't do it. Why do you submit to regulations? That's worldliness. And I can't say it enough, nor loud enough, nor often enough, because no matter how much I say it, the people there are looking at me like, I don't understand what he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> You should have this film to get my expressions. <laughs> really convincing. Okay, now you say, Evan, what if you're wrong on one of these points where I was trying to cut down on my fructose, high fructose corn syrup? Shut up. Just shut up. <laughs> Just say, I'm wrong about everything, and until I prove it right, I'm wrong about everything. Everything I think is wrong. Everything I believe is wrong. Now, what does the Lord want me to do? What does the Lord want me to do? Now, those things are because we have to get we, we have to have some way of getting past this apparent wisdom. Because we've given ourselves check marks. We we sat there with ourselves at that early age where they're still in khakis and they haven't met a girl yet. Um, we've checked ourselves off. Because I really think you're sharing with your other Christian friends. I really think it's you know, we, we like to have a kind of a robust family time on Mondays. And um, 
play a few games of, you know, sorry. Skittles or sorry. Sorry. But, you know, those are, uh, you know, fine to play those games, I guess. But parents get themselves set up in some little world that they award themselves for their wisdom. And again, the testing of the true on day five is when you find out. And you don't want to find out when they're 14. Because you don't want them pregnant. You don't want them drunk. You don't want to find out what you did wrong then. And it doesn't look because you itself, when you have the appearance of wisdom, the appearance of wisdom, the parent will pat themselves on the back. And they will be they will be involved in personal devotions. They'll get together with their wife and they'll they'll read and they'll pray and they'll read Joyce Meyer. May her name be blotted out. <laughs> Look at Jeremy. Um, I think his father ate sour grapes. Ah. But the the idea is that uh, um, we have to we have to have this you want to say humility come to us and say what we're go- what we're about to do in Christ in our home how can i make that actual not the fraud that i mean the scripture had constant witness of all the different religious frauds that are perpetrated on us inside the faith and we are part of them, and good, innocent, dear believers are part of them. Good, innocent, dear believers think them up. It's not like some Satanist at the back room at the church is coming up with this stuff. We're coming up with it. Because we somehow think that rigor of devotion is going to do it. Now, one of the things we have to do, and we've mentioned this a little bit before, um, is uh, undoing the impious. I, mostly because I wanted to say the word impious. Because that's, there was pious, and people say impious, but it's impious. But I just wanted to say that. Um, hypocrisy is not an obvious thing. Hypocrisy is when it's good enough to look pious. Um, the Lord is very clear about it. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. These were guys, these were not church, they were not officials. They were devoted laymen. Not very many in Jerusalem, maybe six, three to 6,000 Pharisees at the time, just devoted to the law of God. And you would have, we would have thought of them, they're the, they're the Jedi, they're the, they're the ninjas of Judaism. They're, they're, they're down with the law of God. <coughs> Jesus did not have, he managed to meet some Pharisees who were going, oh yeah, oh yeah. They began to see the fruit of grace, the fruit of of God's gift. But there were not many of them. And those sorts of things are... uh, uh, Well, we we all know what hypocrisy is. I would trust that because you're here, let's just say, okay, you're not guilty of that one. Move on. But the concern I have is that midway through that section on page 8, it says that right at the top of the page in bold, it says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. When this happens, you know you've been in evangelistic circumstances, you've talked to somebody, and they bring up what rotten people the pastor's kids are. <laughs> or, I've met so many bad Christians, you know they're probably right. 
that probably the church is filled with these hypocrites. And family failures darken the reputation of the gospel. It's not merely, I know you love your kids, and I know you want them to turn out, and I've counseled a lot of parents who've got kids that are away from the Lord, and it's a, it's a cry in shame, and it hurts, and it, you, you don't know where to turn. I was talking to a guy the other night uh, at a party, and you know he really wanted, dear, dear Christian, and wanted to do something about it, but nothing he could do. The kid's an adult, and denied the faith. But the other thing you have to take in consideration is you're also, um, we, are, we are theists. We believe in a God. That means we serve a God. We follow a God. The God is the, we're not the important, the God is important. And it reflects on him. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of us. And if you say, you know, it's not just merely, will it work out with my kids? Golly, I hope so. You know, I, I hope they still go to church when we're done. You know, that, um, you'll t- you realize, you know, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've got people, your, your spouse loves you, your kids naturally love you. And you feed them and give them Skittles and other sins and uh, bread with gluten in it, things like that. <laughs> Just real good things. And they... The greatest opportunity to have this wonderful scene that a non-believer could come into, even if your kids aren't saved yet, if they're like young and just not, don't know the gospel yet, where it's real Christianity. And you know, my you know, one of the reasons we're teaching this class is because uh, our kids turned out. Um, I have four kids; they're all in the light; they all serve the kingdom. They never rebelled. They're reasonably not dorks. You don't know me. <laughs> you don't know me. I have no father. I have two sons. No. Uh, my father had four kids, and all four of us are in the light, and all serve the kingdom. And consequently, we think we have at least in examining some of the attitudes my parents had and we adopted and that we had, uh, we want to share those with you. Not because you have to agree with us, you know, it's not you know, your kids or your kids. Uh, take what you think is beneficial. Um, but the damn, we have to realize that we're, that my, my parents brought non believers into the home all the time. I got to see my dad up against non-believers, bad-mouthing and cursing him out over dinner and doing all, just depressed people, awful people, drug-using people, felons, all sorts of things at the dinner table. Just a treat. And, um, <laughs> and we had a real, you know, quick education. Um, but they all knew that he loved them. They all knew that he knew he had the answer. And many of them got saved. Not all of them, but many of them did. And that's what you, you're not, you, I'm saying is you not only are risking your kids, but also in the gain, you're not just gaining your kids. You're not just gaining your own little you know, beautiful Mormon moment. You're not just uh, 
uh, having a great little family. It'll be great. And the picket fence will actually have integrity, and it'll be we'll have a dog, and he'll be obedient and well trained. <laughs> it'll poop in the neighbor's yard. And, um, I just I'll just be be a t- kind of a self. You're not just destroying the gospel with your failure. You really have an, you're really an aid to the kingdom when. Because there are people out there, the, the, the Pharisees says that they go out, traverse sea and land, and make a single proselyte. When he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. We're out there, we're, the religious are out there ruining people. It's not, not, not surprising. The atheists have a lot of ammunition to level at Christianity. And we got a lot against atheism too, but it's not a, hey, who's a bigger sinner? The Christians or the atheists. It's just tragic that both are awful. Undo the stupid pious. Where's my where's my mouse? Let's put it on this guy up here. Christian faith is believing God and seeking God. Have you believed and sought elsewhere? Now, stupid piety is when you're believing things that just are not true. And it could be anything from notions the world gives you. Um, if you think your salvation or your improvement is changing your diet, if you think that you can make a better soul out of your child by keeping them away from sugar or keeping them away from whatever the current trendy thing to keep them away from is, uh, you start making excuses for their disobedience. They're chemically imbalanced. Their serotonin transfer is not working out. Um, exercise. Exercise. Got to have exercise. Um, Not that that's bad. But. Yeah, none of, again, none of the stuff is bad. If you want to, if you like gluten-free bread, God bless you. You're you're weird, but you, God bless you. It's not a problem to eat gluten-free bread, nor eat Skittles, nor nor um, uh, exercise. Or but when people, this is all a matter of valuation of something. We'll talk about it a little bit later. Um, everything has its true merit. And when the institution becomes more meritorious than the Christ, you're wrong. Not because the institution in and of itself is bad, but because the people use it. They trusted the words, the deceptive words, this is the temple of the Lord. You do the same with food, and Christ and the scriptures are big on it. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is well that the heart be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited their adherents. Again, nowadays, in Christian circles, you can have that conversation, and you might want to have that verse. Not memorized, but memorable. Not foods which have not benefited their adherents. Colossians 2, see to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. We have, he's telling us there are definitions, philosophical definitions that you can have, but don't have them that are in accord with the world. If the world came up with it, if some doctor in Scarsdale wrote a new book on diet, telling you what will make you happier, say, hold it, I'm a Christian. Jesus makes me happy. You know, I'm rejoicing in, in the grace that has been poured out to me. Let God, Christ, is what my philosophy needs to be in accord with. Everything else has to be empty deceit because it's going to get me to believe lies. Now, 
The Timothy 4 passage, again, this is like shooting fish in a barrel. This question comes up of how should we structure, and, and Christian families are structuring everything from diet to believing nonsense, to believing false teachers, to believing uh, famous old traditions and orthodoxies. They are leading their kids away into um, strange paths. Now the Spirit expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons through the pretensions of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and enjoin abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Demonic liars. My father, I remember my father teaching this when I was a teen, remember, and he, and he paused and said, what kind of doctrines are you expecting to hear about now? Demonic lying doctrines. Well, the belong to the Church of Satan in San Francisco, of course. That would be what demonic doctrines would be. No. Food rules. Food rules. For everything, verse 4, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now the question you have to ask yourself is, am I going to believe God, or have I believed and sought things elsewhere? Have I sought God's mind? God says everything. Everything that's food, thank God for it, eat it. If you're a missionary and are serving up some larvae grilled on a bamboo frond, you shouldn't have gone to the mission field. But <laughs> if you're there and you're hungry, thank God. My father, who He's never had a drink in his life of alcohol. He said if a non-Christian put a beer in front of him without asking, he'd thank God for it and drink it. Because the Bible tells him to. And he doesn't want beer. But he would thank God for it and drink it. Because everything made by God is to be received with thanksgiving. Everything is good. Now do you have a view that's different? Now you're going to make a decision. I like french fries. I like food that's generally considered unhealthy, um, and I'm fine with people who want to have a healthier diet. Great. But as soon as that starts to impinge on your family order and salvation, you might say, it starts to be the guide to what makes little Johnny behave better. Yeah, godliness. Godliness. You're, you're bad if you do this. And some Christian groups have, you know, bad attached to what you eat. Can I, t can I yes, do so. Verse 6 says, if you put these instructions before the brethren, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. So, Evan said that that means he's a good minister of Christ Ta -da. Jesus. <laughs> Proof well, right thank there. you, Leslie. Thank you. The rest of you, if you have any food rules at all, are demonic. I am a good minister. Doesn't fix anything, but uh, just like to make sure that point was covered. Now, have nothing to do with God. The passage goes on there, past verse 6. Verse 7, have nothing to do with godless and silly myths. And it, down in verse uh, 9 it says, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. What I want to encourage you to do, I mean, through all of this, it's hopefully you're already in, in, in good stead regarding this, that this is not news to you. But I know how easy it is living in the church today 
to have these things kind of accrete to you and it all has to be peeled off because your kids are at stake and the gospel of Jesus Christ represented by your family is at stake. Is God going to be blasphemed because of your life or are your kids going to fail because of your life? So you might want to strip all this and check it, at least check it and say, do I have I convinced my kids that I've got this wonderful thing going on in my life because of who I've become? What love I have, what justice I have, what mercy I have, what discipline I have, what matters to me, what I care about. Does it seem to make sense to them that they have this affinity? I have this affinity for my father. You know, I wanted, I not just wanted his approval, but I, I, I wanted to be associated with him because, not because he was loving and kind to me and spanked me, that helped, um, but because he was so really Christian. My father's teaching recently, and some of you have heard him recently, uh, is about being, not doing. You've got to be a Christian. You've just got to be. And uh, um, it's something that is... Um, uh, sounds like the Zen of evangelicalism. <laughs> just, just be. My Eyes roll back in his head. And then, are you also without understanding? You, you say, you say, maybe I've been a little strong. Maybe I've been a little mocky about things. But I'm, I'm reading some of these. Oh, you idiots! Silly myths. Are you stupid? That's what this right. Then are you without understanding? Are you dumb? He's talking to um, people who had come to hear him. Do you not see that whatever goes into a man from outside cannot defile since it enters? Not his heart, but his stomach. And so passes on. Thus he declared all foods clean. Another memorable. Jesus Christ declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a man is what defiles a man. And you have to decide who's going to make, you might say, the morally guiding decisions in your life. Again, if you like one thing more than another, great. You can't eat all the time. You can't eat everything. But everything you do eat, you should be thankful for. And you should be aware that everything can be thanked God for. And it has nothing to do with how you are as a believer. Because if you were in a prison, eating the flies off the windowsill in the prison, because that's all they gave you, you could be rejoicing in the light and serving the Lord Jesus Christ, and you could die well. And if your kid was in that situation, you would be honored to have such a kid who didn't have any good food that would help his attitude. He doesn't need good food to help his attitude. He doesn't need the right diet to help his attitude. He's in a prison. They're going to burn him at the stake. He's going to be the food if it's a cannibal tribe. But he can be rejoicing in the Lord. That's what Christianity is. It doesn't need everything to be right in this world. It says down in Second Timothy, and I wanted to bring this up because this t touches on mothers. Uh, talking about false teachers, verse 5, holding the form of religion but denying the power of it. 
Avoid such people, for among them are those who make their way into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and swayed by various impulses, who will listen to anybody and can never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Ow! These false teachers in the church of that day People looking for a way in to get power in a situation or get free freebies or what's wrong with these women? They have unconfessed sin. Someone had better restrain them because they're swayed by various impulses. Their impulse decides what they do, not their principles, not the reason, not the word of God, impulse. And they'll listen to anybody. They don't falsify anything. What you need to be looking out for, including what you're hearing this week, because I could be, even though it's my house I <laughs> snuck into, is this based on, does this appeal to anybody or is it register with somebody only because they're burdened with sins? Is it excuse making for sin? Is it impulse-driven, where it's trying to get you to respond in some way because you're passionate rather than because you're thinking about it. And can you falsify it? Do, do, do make that you know, uh, effort to falsify and say, okay, what makes him think he's all right? Okay, it's all out of scriptures. I'll go back and read those scriptures. But I'll read it in context. You know, you want to read it in context. So look them all up. So what what would I be, what kind of image does God want his people to have? Not, well, he sees very clearly some things not to be. And we have, have to have a Christianity. What's the residue left? What You strip it all away. What's the heart of your heart? Where, where does your Christianity say? Because your kids are going to be seeing that one. And you don't want to have all this externality that covering it all up, you need to have, you know how you meet a Christian? And you meet a Christian and they never bring up anything about the Lord, but then you meet some Christians and they want to talk about the Lord. What a blessing. What a okay, these are the this is the real thing. Now so moms watch out for this. Husbands, if your wife is susceptible, you might be part of the restraint. Don't expect to raise kids in the Lord if mom or husband is burdened with sins. You might want it, but you're not going to get it. Only if the gospel was preached to your kids by somebody else. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. You'll believe crazy stuff when you're done, if you're led by these things. The world likes to scratch our itch. The world likes to say things that, oh, that sounds reasonable. That sounds sad, because it's, it, it's, it's catering to some aspect. I keep watching commercials, and just about, you, know, you can tell that they know my generation is afraid. And if it isn't insurance commercials, it's prostate. If it's not prostate, it's uh, Cialis or Viagra, or what's the other one? I can remember all these names, but I can remember Inside. these names. And then there's uh, you know, all these... Uh, um, Everything based on, on what our itch is. 
and we will believe the most bald-faced lie or myth uh, and go ahead with it. Undue fear. And this is sort of our last section of undoing. Now, oh, I got I got to change the slide. Fear is um, has no place for the Christian. I mean, fear of the Lord. It's the same kind of fear, but it's again, it's not. It's like shadow and substance. You're gonna have a shadow. You're gonna have a substance. Which is which? You're gonna have a fear. What are you gonna fear? The Lord or everything else? But people are very defensive about their fears. They almost can't shake them. They're afraid. It's like talking to somebody who just walked out of a horror movie. They, they don't know what to do with, with it. And You know, Leslie's run into it a lot. She's been working with a, an idea of writing a paper on the subject. Have you? Not much. Not much, okay. Are you afraid? <laughs> just. Well, I need to. I would like <clears throat> Because it's a, it's a big problem, especially among women. And as the society becomes more feminized and men become more eunuched, gelded, <laughs> they become more fraidy cats too. They have different excuses. One of them is a monastic sanctity of denial. Because we know from our Gnostic heritage of the Christian faith that somehow if it looks like denial rather than scared, it looks more religious and right to us. We give up something really um, because we're afraid, not because we want to deny ourselves, but denial is an excuse. This is a not, that's not as big a one as expressing your love. You know what's dangerous about that? And women do this a lot because it's the way they express it. Oh, you, you could be safe, right? Camping? With that axe? And uh, the problem with thinking your fear is love is you think that you can be infinite in love and get away with it. You think you can never let up on your fears because you are, you are making it synonymous with love. I'm expressing my love. I care too much. You care too much. <gasps> Whoops. Sorry. Oh, no. This is not what we are. <laughs> it says scary. we're being threatened here. <laughs> I was closing the little box and it turned, it flipped it over. <laughs> I'm sure you can find it. Okay, all the men are going, a woman's touching the computer. Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> totally. Okay, we'll go here. The key is to allow. Sure, yes, I want to close. <laughs> And, um, we came, uh, I don't think it heard you say that, <laughs> yeah, the recorder. So, there we go. Sorry. I'll keep my hand off. <laughs> w women justify by, by saying it's love, not fear, and then everyone suffers under there. And, and really, like all of these things, these are all things the kid, the image the kid has to deal with. And you have to say, is that religion, that kind of satisfaction, that kind of security, that kind of joy, they're going to go, you know, I could move in with my girlfriend who will give me beer or put up with you. And you're an idiot. And you don't let me drink beer because you're afraid. 
love too much. Men do it by showing how responsible you are, because we like to make sure that you know we still have our we still have our wits about us. Um, uh, we hide it under that. Well, I don't think you really ought to be driving across the country. I just want to be responsible as a father, and oh, don't be such a scaredy cat. Give him the keys. It's you say, well, Evan, bad things can happen. Yeah, I know. Stuff happens. I don't care. <laughs> and, I, and I think I'm being biblical here. You say, don't you have any love or responsibility? And some of you, it's the narrative of excitement. I have it different in the book. It says, the inertial force to your life. And I say, what did I mean when I wrote that? <laughs> um, and I had to come back and go, uh, it's the narrative of excitement. Some people just like crisis. Kind of just like drama. They think their life's a movie. They think things have got to be, and they build fears. It's kind of like uh, Munchausen by proxy. Have you heard of that? That uh, syndrome? Women who will hurt their children to the point of needing hospitalization so they can rescue their children. Some people like drama. A lot. But really it's the love and the responsibility one. But just to be clear, just to be clear, Luke says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who could kill the body, and after that can do mo no more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he's killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. It's not a matter of whether you fear, it's what the ordinate thing is. Now, that, I, I use those phrases a lot. Ordinate, inordinate. Um, you've got to know, you say, but little Johnny could skin his knee. Yeah, I know. What's the ordinate fear? How much attention does that need? You gonna put little knee pads on him? Gonna put a little helmet on his head? Gonna leave you a little safe? Is he gonna be made fun of by all the other boys? Yes, he will. Because you're afraid and you're inordinately afraid. Yes, one kid in a gazillion got hurt on bikes before they invented helmets. We managed to survive somehow the Middle Ages of the 50s. And uh, people managed to survive the Middle Ages. And they were swinging swords at each other <laughs> in the Middle Ages. Where were the moms then, I ask you? Now, the Lord says, you know, yeah, they could kill you. And Jesus doesn't seem to have much mercy. He goes, yeah, yeah, they could kill you. But they can't do anything after that. <laughs> Well, and the mother's average mother in the crowd is going, Jesus, I don't think you understand. That wasn't a good illustration for us as women. We want to stop them from ever dying. We can't accept our children ever dying. Okay, correct that notion. Luke 12. Do not be anxious for your life. Oh, verse 25, Luke 12. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a cubit to his span of life? And then I believe in the Greek it says, neener, neener, neener. <laughs> well, actually, very close. If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest, you idiot? If you couldn't make your and what is so many fears of the? If you smoke, your life's going to be shorter. Nothing's going to be making any shorter or longer. You got you got no control. You don't have anything. You don't know what's going to happen here. 
The Lord says, nor be of anxious mind, for all the nations of the world seek these things. This is a worldly notion. goes back to that idea, the Christian faith is to believe God and seek God. You are designing a life that is either on that, where you say, I am finding this out about fear, and I'm going to obey God. Or I'm going to find out about what, how many kids get their heads hit, hit on a helmet. Now, I won't laugh at your kid if it comes up with a helmet. <laughs> in front of you. Uh, with my wife, I will afterwards. And I, again, like like the high church or the liturgy or the catechism, none of these things are in and of themselves bad. What moves them is an inordinate fear where I don't trust the living God because he tells me not to be of anxious mind. He knows the world cares about these things. Your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be yours as well. But fear is not quite over with us, because it just sits on you, especially as mothers. You know, you got a brand new baby there, really brand new baby there, not yet hatched. And uh, tomorrow, college, if I don't start putting money in the bank now, They'll never go to college. Nobody put money in the bank in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s for college for their kids. Nobody. Just tell the kid, if you want to go to college, get a job. Earn it. Get a scholarship. Don't worry about it. It's tomorrow. And the Lord says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. That's Jesus, by the way. Jesus Christ Familiar name? For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. Got that? Do not. Another memorable text. Don't memorize it. Just make it memorable. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and get gain. Whereas you do not know about tomorrow. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Oh, that's, that's encouraging. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we'll do, do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. You realize it's not just, oh, you know, people are kind of different. You know, some of us, you know, we take more care. No. This is a kind of, oh, I have to change the slide here. Worried about tomorrow? Stop it. Got tomorrow all well worked out? No, you don't. But today, give it up to him. You got nothing. You got nothing. You're not allowed to be afraid, except of the living God. You can't be afraid for tomorrow. The Lord told you you can't be. You can't even think you got tomorrow worked out. I'm going to go to such and such a town by and say, no, you. you. The rich fool. Remember the rich fool? He didn't do anything wrong. I have a great harvest. I'm going to build bigger barns. No, you're not. You're going to be dead. You don't have tomorrow. And you can't worry enough to add any time to your tomorrow. If you're going to be dead tomorrow, too bad. All the worry, all the planning, even the wise planning. The farmer did a wise thing. I'll build bigger barns. More, more grain, bigger barns. It made perfectly good sense. Except the substance wasn't, the, the, the parable says, he was supposed to be rich towards God. 
He was conscious of planning out his future. You think you got tomorrow worked out. Do you got your walk with God worked out? Do you, do you have that richness worked out? It is okay for you to have your kids do their homework, though. If it's nah. due tomorrow and they are still alive, they're going to need it. Yeah. <laughs> if I don't kill you tonight for not doing your homework. Yeah, but you don't want to be... You, you, sometimes a, a mother sees that C coming home on the math quiz and suddenly the whole narrative of his life lays out in front of them. <laughs> and if you don't, I will... I will not be able to be proud. And my, my best friend, who's my worst enemy, will laugh at me. <laughs> <laughs> Philippians 6. Have no anxiety about everything. Ah, you think that you... Okay, Jesus has you hemmed in. You can't worry about tomorrow. You can't do anything about tomorrow. You think you got tomorrow worked out, but you don't. And so, okay, he said I could worry about today. Okay. Okay, if you're anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And started with, have no anxiety about anything. First Peter 5, 7, cast your anxieties on him, for he cares about you. Because your home is going to have an aroma of either joy, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, wisdom, and doing it by God's wisdom, or your own. He wants us to be free of anxieties. He wants women and Peter to do right and let nothing terrify you. Because the holy women of old hoped in God, it said in, in Peter there. They hoped in God. Um, you have two things. In that passage, women have two things. They have their husbands. She called her husband Lord. And they had God, who they hoped in. And if your kids don't see a mother who has her reverence to her husband clearly worked out. And her reverence to her God, because frankly, as my mother has said, uh, what was the phrase? There has been no man ever created that could satisfy the heart of a woman. Women are infinite fifth dimensional space lockers of insecurity. And this temptation is going to be on you. And what I'm telling you is your kids are watching it and fighting it and being embarrassed by it and thinking this is what she, as an adult, not even just a Christian adult, thinks that she's in the state of that she's trying to work out and stop from happening. And sometimes she'll be encouraged by being right occasionally. You did skin your knee. You did knock your head. You did put your eye out. Okay? Now, and then she goes, well, see, I'm needed. I'm needed to be this policewoman of fear to ruin your life and mine so that you never want to be around me again. But we're supposed to be free from anxieties because God wants to promote good order at the end of the Corinthians passage. Promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And that's, I mean, at the beginning of the, of the talks there, the first page, there was that, by wisdom a house is built. And by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. By wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And you've got to look at things like fear, and church tradition, and, and personal devotional nonsense, and set it all aside, the law, and set all these things aside and say, what kind of, 
what am I left with? What kind of walk with Jesus Christ can I have? Because I know that the image that, that having all those create, I've watched it destroy countless families. Fears, whether or not they're fictional or realistic or unrealistic, um, and so many times fears enter the family in the, in the past tense because sometimes there's a bitterness that comes up because mom was right, dad was right, you didn't do the right thing, and somebody got hurt, and it was bad, and it cost us some money, and there's bitterness about it. Who wouldn't want to escape your life? I mean, the kids, the kids are going to want to get away from you. And you don't want the, you don't want their final maturing, and they're, they're, you, maybe you're not just a patriarch and trying to hold on to them the whole life. But you're shaking hands at the door. They're heading off to college, and they're going, "Thank God, I survived." And and they go join a frat. You have to be ready for a cosmology that is futile, a cosmology that is killing you, and is going to kill your children now and they're going to end up sinners and you've got to be kind of the kind of person that lays out what real Christianity is now at the end simply put where's the real Christianity slide the image is the gospel of Jesus Christ the righteousness of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom from above and is your child dealing with this in you is that what they're dealing with or are they dealing with church are they dealing with some kind of Christian program that they're going through are they dealing with fear in their parents? Are they dealing with um, a kind of uh, uber-sentimental devotional Christianity that isn't borne witness to in the scriptures? Uh, are they dealing with crazy myths? You know, I don't know what your eschatology is, but a lot of it's crazy. Don't do it. Be better for you. I'm not saying what mine is, and you should agree with it, but just drop it. It's all mythic. It's all fanciful. So watch out for the things that can substitute something else for this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, is the message that you have to bow the knee to and call on the name of the Lord to be saved. You. Passing from death to light. Dark to light. Death to life. Does the, did the gospel change you from what you were? Is the righteousness that you deal the fruit of the Spirit, righteousness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Or is it how involved you've gotten in your Christian community? And for a long time, I'm just warning you, for a long time, well-loved, well-disciplined, kids being raised in, in stupid Christianity will never let you know because they don't know they're being raised in stupid Christianity, but they will find out. And last, on the wisdom, uh, it's more than just righteousness and you, whether you're changed. Do you understand the world God made? Do you know how to straighten? We as fathers would like to be able to show your kid how to change a tire. Back in the good old days, actually gap the, the, the spark plugs or do something else with the car. But, you know, do stuff. Throw a spiral with a football. We'd like to show them how to do things. Uh, we have to understand 
the world the way God sees it. It's a difference of uh, kind of mind, the kind of wisdom that's from above. It says in James, his first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, without uncertainty or insincerity. Think of that, especially fathers, think of that as a guide to who you are in the home. Pure, peaceable, gentle, this big one, open to reason. And too many fathers think that any challenge of what their position is is insubordination and therefore must be crushed. But wisdom from above is open to reason. That doesn't mean give in to the kid. It means open to reason. Because at the end of the list, it says without uncertainty or insincerity. Believe me, my kids have argued with me about everything. I was open, but I was certain. Now, I don't mind. They could win. I don't care. But the idea is, is this the image? Or is there some sort of Martinet, the father Abraham, the, the kind of person who's gotten all patriarchal and, and, and is... Supreme. What's the phrase I used earlier that was, I, I do as biblical, rat bastard. <laughs> About their life. Until you have a great walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, until you have a great walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, you could forget about rearing your kids in Christ. I mean, you know, you could rear your kids. You could do, non-Christians could rear their kids and turn out decent citizens. You could do that. But until you have a great, when your walk, because nothing less, you know, I, I, I'd like to point to my father, because the man's a saint. He's got sins, he's got problems that he's dealt with over the years. He's, you know, but compared to every man I've known, he's a saint. And he's just normal. He's just a normal Christian. He's just doing everything the Bible says and nothing it doesn't say. Simple. As he would say. <laughs> Simple. I got that phrase. Stop it from him, you know. You're afraid of this? Stop it. Quit that. Jesus said you can't. Jesus is in charge of you. You're not in charge of yourself. All of your sins are you thinking you're in charge of yourself. And then you think you're in charge of your kids. We're telling you here today, God is in charge of you. And this is what he says about these things. So, that is it. We have been given watermelon. I think it was right at two hours, because I think we started right about quarter after. We'll be shorter the next ones because we had a long number of pages for this one. But uh, the, the Hagans have brought over watermelon. There is... She, Stephanie wishes she's afraid that you'll not judge it pretty enough. Tell me how to cut it so that Well, let's thank God. Dear Lord, thank you very much for what your son has provided to us. We'd ask that you would remind us each, as we are constantly tempted by the world, to set up religious forms that can lead us astray, let alone our families. And we'd ask you to keep us sane. In your son's name, amen. amen.